0: hello and welcome to the data iq podcast i'm david reed in this edition we're going to be hearing about data ethics and data science i'll be bringing you highlights from two panel discussions about how different generations view technology and the privacy risks they present there's some learning from parenting that that might be transferred. i think they spend more time explaining the technology to me (laughs) (laughs) and also about the tensions between commerce and governance
1: and the truth of the matter is businesses aren't driven by what's ethically good. They're driven about making money.
0: I also speak to Orlando Machado about being named number one in this year's Data IQ 100.
2: My mum absolutely has a copy of the book. because She takes it everywhere.
0: So first, at Data IQ Align, the Data Ethics and Privacy Conference, I moderated a panel involving Torin Stafford, Head of Data Privacy and Protection at Lloyds Banking Group, Mira Naig, Head of Data Transformation at Bernardo's, and Moritz Gödel, Director at London Economics. We started with a look at our research into what consumers actually understand by the term data ethics. This is the consumer understanding of data ethics when we say to them, what does this mean to you? And as was referenced earlier, you know, a large number think it just means you can, you know, it's about consent. In other words, they're in that GDPR mindset, which is understandable given how much we've been talking about GDPR recently. Uh, We haven't talked about this, but 21% say, you know, it's not a term I'm familiar with. Now, that's actually disproportionately um, represented across those attitudinal groups that I talked about at the start. So amongst the trusting, um, (coughs) slightly fewer say they're not familiar with it. 16.2% only say, I don't know what the term means. But amongst those who say, I don't care, it rises to 36.7%, so double the level. And the I don't care group is one in ten of the customer base. Um, So, anyone who's good at maths, uh, a third of one in ten is... Anyway, um, there are a significant number of people in our customer base who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, So I think, you know, a a question that we should start to consider is where do we begin with explaining this concept to our customers? Uh, Mira, you were talking about uh, within Bernardo's that you know, it has values, it has an ethical position. How do you start to talk about data ethics within that context?
3: Um, well, I think it's really hard. I think there's, as we said earlier, there's lots of definitions about it. There's, you know, it's a kind of buzzword at the moment and lots of people talking about it. But I think it's just making it relevant to the values of the organisation, so whether, you know, from the charity, and making it relevant to people trying to explain it in terms that that makes, you know, gives context to their situation as opposed to just trying to, you know, give one-word one, one word answer. I think there's, there's definitely different ways of trying to explain it. I think we can learn a lot from, you know, not just having text written. I think, you know, um, Bernardo's and I think other charities have been really good at trying to explain some really difficult uh, scenarios and difficult topics in in different ways, whether that be visual, um, whether that be, you know, through a cartoon, whether that through be just really... Um, Icons. I think there's lots of people, you know, doing things in that space, so potentially starting to look at things like that. Yeah,
0: because we kind of saw that, didn't we, with uh, GDPR, some brands, BBC, with David Attenborough, Channel 4, with um, uh, Chatty Man, Alan Carr, uh, talking about their privacy policies. So do you think that's the next step, is to get into, you know, multimedia explanations of this? Yeah, I
3: think so, potentially,
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah. Torin, when you're having this conversation, it's at the moment it's internally focused, but you have, you know, customer panels
4: that you're engaging with. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I'm in a, a big advocate of that, listening to your customers, mm. understanding the the test, you know, we have, we have our literature interest tests, you know, that we conduct for GDPR, but some of this is about reasonability in terms of data usage, you know, the, the bit that um, helps explain, or help understanding for my customers where their line is, and that may... You know, I don't know yet because we're, we're conducting it at the moment, but that line may change by generation. It may change by uh, you know, financial uh, you know, capital that you may have as an individual. I don't know, you know but I think it's a really important to understand uh, where that customer line is for your own organizations because only then can you uh, really defend what you're doing from an innovation perspective. And also design things, design your governance around data ethics that meets that reasonability test. So I think it's a really important point. The other thing that financial services have to also consider is how do we then explain, and we already do this with a number of difficult financial concepts, but how do you explain that to customers when there is such a low level of readability age? Um, And that's where, again, you you need to think about the appropriate language at which you then are... Explaining quite complicated concepts.
0: Well, and you opened your presentation with uh, those pictures of your boys um, mm. and reference facts. You know, they are growing up within these systems. They've never known anything else. And you, as a parent, have to explain concepts like right and wrong. Uh, you know, basic ethics to them. So I guess there's some learning from parenting that, that might be transferable. I think
4: they spend more time explaining the technology
0: to me, if I'm <laughs> honest. <but. laughs> Um, Maurice, uh, what, what's your take on you know, whether data ethics will become part of brand communication and, and whether there's a value in, in doing that now or whether it's worth waiting?
5: I think yes, it, it, it will and it, it already has started. I also think um, it's going to pretty soon it's, it's not going to be seen as a separate thing. It's going to be part of corporate ethics more broadly. It is a slightly artificial distinction. Because for the consumers, a lot of the interactions they have with companies is not about data. It's about things they want from the company, from the service provider, that have nothing to do with data primarily. Just data is part of the exchange. So to to view that just through the data lens is, I think, misleading and, and puts a burden on the customer that is slightly unfair, you know, the customer does not have to understand everything you do with the data, they don't have to be experts in machine learning and, and, and so on to, or we shouldn't ask that of them in, in, in order to make decisions who, who they want to interact with, I, there's a paradox of control they call it, the more you suggest to people that they're in control, the more careless they become, you know, they, they uh, if, 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 if they um, get given this uh, I- impression that they're in control, then they will be- give away their data more freely and think about it even
0: less. What you're suggesting there is it polarises people's response, that they can become more anxious uh, and want you know, more control and more explanation, or they just go...
5: Great, right, fine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, of, and of course, at, at the heart of that is that the risks are not well understood. You know, mm. what will be the risks further down the line once, you know, you have more ubiquitous AI making decisions in different uh, domains of, of, of your life? We don't know yet how bad it can get.
0: Mira, obviously, one of the things that happened for, for charities was, you know, the revelations, perhaps, of, of what was happening with people's data Presumably increase the number of calls to, to the charity going, What are you doing with my information?
3: It it puts so much more focus on the charities and I think that's why they had to step up. So I think it's um you know, and people more scrutiny and actually, you know, the impact is still people still believe in you know, believed in charities, still wanted to do their do their thing, donate or use mm. them. So but I think it's what it made is is everyone just step up a little bit and I think that's where with, with ethics it's actually the organizations should, should be doing should be thinking about this stuff and should be putting it into their organizations you know like front like you are and, and iteratively maybe talking about it but actually I think sometimes it's going to be those personal stories again that actually bring more focus to it so I think we just need to again try and be ready for that so.
0: let's have a look at another finding this is from the business survey that we carried out um, where we were asking companies. Uh, what they would do um, if a data ethics issue arose. What we can see is we're we're in a very sort of ad hoc stage right now. With 58.3% pulling together a working group, if necessary, and only 15.3% have an existing ethics panel, which I guess, um, Torrin, sounds probably like the position that you're in. You're in that
4: um, that leadership group. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, things are, things are changing so rapidly here. There's no denying the fact that um, there is something here that we have to deal with as organisations, as responsible businesses. Um, what it is, though, I think is still being panned out, because we need to take account of all the regulatory changes and announcements and guidance and not even guidance, but, you know, blogs are, you know, a thing now from the ICO. (laughs) So, um, you know, I'm not sure what they are, but they're something we should be absolutely reading, digesting, figuring out if if they're best practice, for example, you know, are we meeting those best practice examples today? So it's a moving feast, it feels, but... You know, our message to the board is it is a thing. These are the things we're thinking about. And these are the things we want to... I mean, there's an an ask here for money, investment, uh, which we hope we get. But it's real, really important investment because it's not just, not to be too commercially minded, but it's not just about the kind of customer-driven angle here. It's also about the innovation as well. Hmm. Because the innovation will stifle unless we get the ethical standards and qualifications in that within the organisation. So there's a real you know, uh, direct link to be able to do more with data. For example, co- on the colleague side, so we've talked a lot about customer today, mm-hmm. but uh, colleagues within the group. So I talked about our, uh, our values around understanding mental health issues. You know, Our colleagues have those same issues. You know, we're not immune to that. Um, within industry you know we work really hard we have str- high levels of stress I'm sure there's a few nodding heads you know I certainly feel that sometimes but what more could we do from a workforce analytics perspective to take more preventative action you know up front to think about things like stress absenteeism levels driven by what we're seeing in terms of data points on those colleagues and we're not doing anything with that but these are the kind of use cases that you know, as a responsible business, we want to explore because I think there's a real. You know, these are the, these are the kind of cases that we can make a real difference.
5: We don't just have one type of ethics. There's a, different ethical frameworks you can use, and and I mentioned the from the policymakers often a, a, apply a kind of utilitarian framework where there's uh, a, a benefit, a material benefit to be realised, and then. Uh, you, you want to put some constraints on it. So it, 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 it's, in, ethics is a bit instrumental and in some of the language around, oh, we need to have ethics in place to enable innovation that, that makes ethics sort of as, as, a, as, a, as a supporting tool for uh, other benefits. And I, I think there's potential um, for, for an ecosystem for for different type of ethical frameworks like now we see in the corporate world or in the charity world, you know, we, we have a utilitarian ethics. A lot of business, businesses now have a sort of communitarian approach where, that recognises the value of, of distinct stakeholder communities, recognises vulnerable groups and so on. And you, you have in the charity sector you know, uh, religious frameworks and d- different... You know, the, Actually, the Bishop of Oxford, I, I learned the other day, is on, on this uh, Centre for Data Ethics Board for 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 the UK government. So, I, I can imagine that if you have um, this broader d- debate about ethics, that and, and that you will see a differentiation. That there might be ethics boards that sort of conform to your organisation's uh, understanding of the issues, and then there might be, you know, when we move to non-personal data, sort of the more engineering type. Uh, tasks like automated cars and so on. You have very sort of, strict utilitarian benefit maximizing uh, uh, types of ethics and that will be appropriate.
0: And now, earlier this year we launched the 2019 edition of the data IQ 100. Sitting at number one in our top 10 was Orlando Machado chief data scientist at Aviva. I caught up with him at the quantum data science hub in Hoxham Square to find out how it felt and what data science means for the insurer. So Orlando, in March, DataIQ unveiled its new list of the 100 most influential people in data-driven business in the UK, and we named you as number one. What are your memories of that moment?
2: Well, it's a bit of a blur. I remember you saying that uh, seven out of the top ten uh, in the Data one, IQ 100 were new to the list, or new to the top ten. Uh, I was privileged enough to be number eight last year, so I thought um, I didn't have a chance. And so we did the countdown and I was extremely excited when we got to number one. Um, I was very shocked um, and I was actually honoured. And it was, um, it was a lovely moment actually because I had lots of colleagues in the room, many of whom had helped shape my career and, and, and get to where I am now. Um, so it was a massive honour.
0: And how did you feel about being ranked at the top of the list? As a high flyer you must be quite used to getting accolades.
2: We tend to find that we get lots of accolades for um, the kind of company that we are, so we're very big on responsibility and diversity and the kind of being a great place to work. And um, the team gets lots of awards increasingly for some of the products that we've been launching. I think this was particularly nice in that it was a personal honour and I think... um, It was a a real privilege to get a personal honour, and I think that's the one that my mum cared about the most. My mum absolutely has a copy of the book, and she takes it everywhere. So Orlando,
0: you are part of one of the biggest data science functions um, around with Aviva
2: Quantum. Can you give the audience an idea of the scope of what it is that you're doing here? Aviva Quantum is a, a data science practice of around 700 people. And so Aviva has operations in 16 different markets right now. And when we think about data science, it's a very broad church at Aviva. So we have people carrying out what we call insurance fundamentals. This is typically risk modelling, which influences pricing. But increasingly, it helps improve our claims journey. And also things like fraud detection, very big use case for for data science. The um, the discipline that we're bringing in uh, increasingly is something called customer science. So if you think about the way that retailers think about data science, it's often about understanding customers personalising the experience and also releasing products that we think are grounded in customer insights and customer needs. That has been missed by a lot of the insurance industry and we're trying to go big on that actually. We're trying to use data science to um, improve all of our business from the manufacturing of products, the the core insurance product, all the way through to customer engagement, building loyalty, building cross-sell. And actually, um, essentially creating an all-round uh, more successful, sustainable and profitable business.
0: Hmm. Uh, I think you just touched on this, but um, data science is obviously having a significant impact for Aviva, and especially its customers. Can you share an example of that
2: with us? great example is something called Aviva Plus. So we launched Aviva Plus eight weeks ago. It's a brand new product. It has a number of different features. So one of them is that people pay via a monthly subscription. So a bit more like a Netflix type model. A key feature is that uh, it has a price promise in it. So we'd say you will not pay more as an existing customer than you would do as a new customer. We know that one of the biggest customer frustrations within the insurance industry is that people feel that they are lured in with a very cheap price and then over time prices go up when they're not looking. Uh, We have been part of that ourselves and, and we're trying to make a stand. We're trying to launch new products that break that kind of model ultimately to try to earn the loyalty of our customers and earn the trust of our customers. To do that, there's an enormous amount of data science behind the scenes, and we think that Aviva Plus is probably the most data science-intensive product in the market. But the outcome for customers is that it's just a better deal.
0: Talent acquisition is usually considered to be a challenge in this industry, yet Quantum has been able to track hundreds of data analysts and data scientists, I think you quoted 700 globally, How have you managed that?
2: I think in some of our offices we've had a big presence for a long time. So if you think about our Norwich office, we have very good relationships with the University of East Anglia. Uh, We are a very big recruiter in that area and we're a natural company for people in that area to turn to. So our reputation is very well established. I think um, where we've had to think more carefully is in some of our newer offices and if we think about recruiting in London, where we have competition from Google and Amazon and Facebook and a number of other people, we think very carefully about making this one of the best places to work. It typically falls into five broad areas, so one of them is data itself. So we have an extremely deep and interesting data source. We've got 16 million customers in the UK, we've got 33 million globally, and we know a lot about our customers. The the second thing is that we've got technically challenging data science problems. Machine learning, AI, people can um, practice all of their different techniques on a huge data set. The the third part of it is that it's not a vanity project. So we are absolutely willing to act on the solutions to these problems and transform our business because it's, it's core to insurance in a way that it isn't core to some other businesses. The the fourth thing that we think about is actually the working environment. So if you think about here, our offices in Hoxton, they are set up for collaboration. They're set up for cross-functional teams, and actually they're a rival to many companies like Google or Facebook or Amazon and some of the tech companies that we're trying to lure people away from. And um, the fifth thing I wanted to mention is actually um, personal and career development. So we take personal development very, very seriously. We're in the process... Through Quantum, we're in the process of trying to professionalise data science and have it recognised as a discipline so that we can have career development, progression, all of the kind of things that would um, have been offered in a more traditional profession, so being an accountant or being a lawyer, we want to offer in the data science discipline. So we take it very, very seriously. And I think all around, um, that makes us an extremely attractive place to work. I can certainly vouch for the environmental effects that you, you mentioned,
0: having walked through the office. It's a very attractive uh, office space, but noticeably walking through the, um, the practitioner uh, office area, there was a, a, an excellent buzz, there's very clear evidence of that collaborative nature at work. Now, you are number one in our list. There are a lot of people in our community across data analytics functions who are actually reserved about promoting themselves. They like to think often that their work will speak for themselves so they don't push themselves forward. What would you say to them? What advice would you give them?
2: I would say just do it. I think there's nothing to lose. I think go ahead, nominate yourself. And I would say it's not just about shameless self-promotion. I think there's a real need in the industry for data-literate people to gain more prominence. I think everybody's talking about data. Everybody's talking about data science but the number of people that actually know what they're talking about is still limited. So the more people who have some kind of technical depth, some kind of experience, some kind of knowledge in the area, who promote themselves, I think the better for the industry. And finally, we made you our number one, but do you consider yourself to be a public figure? <laughs> that, that's an interesting one. I think um, you know, we're a big regulated company. We, we have uh, dialogue with government. We have dialogue with regulators and policy makers. I get invited to... Events. We're hosting an event for a Whitehall and industry group tomorrow. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking, so I think within the industry, um, I think people can come to see what I have to say. But I think it's a little while before I'm going to be recognised on the tube.
0: <laughs> Finally, our second highlights package from Data IQ Alliance. In this session, we heard from Ali Shah, head of technology policy at the Information Commissioner's Office; Kate Tay, group legal director for Telegraph News and Media; Peter Galdees, managing director of DQM GRC and, speaking first, Helen Tador, Head of Analytics and Innovation at Crow. She began the discussion by considering what consumer choice around privacy online means in practice at commercial organisations. Helen, in your work at Crow and how you advise your client base, give us a sense of how you practically deliver choice to a user base.
6: So I think the question of choice is really interesting because actually if you look up obviously the dictionary definition for choice there's many uh, answers in there depending if it's an adjective or a noun etc. But effectively it boils down to the ability to be able to choose the most appropriate option for a number of possibilities which we do give our consumers generally. However I think the more key here is about it being a meaningful choice and that a consumer is able to express what it is that they actually want, in words and ways that they understand that can then be easily and practically translated into the system that is behind it and doing that translation for them. I think quite often it's actually very difficult to reflect the choice that you're trying to portray to, to the customer in the way that you would like to do that. So it's very difficult to navigate and I think that's the key there. So it's the meaningful aspect of mm-hmm. choice.
0: And Kate, okay, presumably, you know, for the, for the tech this is really important that uh, you, you make the choice meaningful, so you can talk about informed consent.
1: Absolutely, um, which is why we participated in the IAB Transparency and Consent Framework. Uh, but having read through the eighty pages of the House, the um, DCMS white paper, the choice is 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 not quite out there, especially when you know we're guilty of trying to retain readers on our website. So we will try and serve them content to keep them, to hook them in, keep them interested. Uh, and that's, a, that's another way of looking at choice. Uh, what, it was interesting, there was an article I was reading, when I was reading up about eco-chambers, this new, new, new trendy word in, in this area. Um, the journalist himself had asked about half a dozen of his friends to type in Egypt into their Google search to see what results they got. And each of them got different results based on what their behaviors had been online previously, what their interests were in online. So it is very interesting coming to this question, is there a real choice out there? We think we're giving our users our, cho- our choice, but actually um, we want to serve them with ads, which are, we hope, meaningful to them, but that only means that they'll end up seeing 50,000 different ads for Marks and Spencers or Waitrose or whatever. Um, or we might want to serve them with article, or articles that we think will be of interest to them, which might mean, you know, five articles on Meghan Markle's baby and three on Kate Middleton's skirt or something like that. It, 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 with artificial intelligence, yeah, it does bring that into question. What choices are really there?
0: Well, absolutely. And Ali, you, I mean, you, you opened a presentation talking about freedom of choice and, mm. you know, the extent to which that is defined by, by where you start. But you also then reference how, you know, with pervasive AI it's not gonna be as visible. You know, our ability at the start of that journey to say, yes, I'm gonna opt in or I'm going to block these things may not be the
7: same. Uh, I agree and I think uh, with the fast pace of developments, it's a constantly moving target. So it's a difficult problem, right? So I, I don't think we should shy away from that. But I think there's a couple of things that we can all do. I think one is just have that honest conversation because when I was talking about that you know, opportunity question or conundrum around how do you really define your outcomes and, and the freedom of choice that you have, it also applies for businesses because if you're trying to deliver services to a customer, you know you've bundled that business that product together and you're trying to target that customer. There's a cost to how you do that, and you're looking for a return. Having that honest conversation to say, well, actually, for us to deliver this thing to you, here's what it takes, right? And and really being clear about the return on the investment that the customer will make with you. So if I am there to, sh- if I need to share my data with you. What do I get in return for that? Not just necessarily the direct product that you're returning, but how you're using that. Why is it that you need that information? Being really honest and frank in that conversation, I think, is one of the things that we can do straight away. Again, even that is not easy. It's difficult to sort of engage with customers. I know that. But I think that's what you need to start to really think about now, because the pervasiveness of machine learning is going to really start to challenge how that actually manifests itself down the road. Um, so before you get into a difficult space where it's really difficult to understand, well, why did we actually serve that ad to a customer, or why did we really try and bring a, make a customer stay for longer on our platform? Well, actually, don't get avoid getting there in the first place. But having that initial understanding about well, why are customers really coming to us in the first place? Um, Peter, in the
0: work that you do, uh, working on audits with, with your, your client base, um, how clearly expressed are the choices that people have typically?
1: Uh,
8: that's a tough question to answer. Organizations struggle with the question, I think, as much as the choice, right? right? So being transparent in a way to consumers that they can, uh, that they can relate to, that um, is in context with uh, the dialogue that you're having them anyway, um, and then being able to express uh, and offer a series of options that they can respond to uh, in a way that, that uh, is totally clear is a real challenge for most organisations. And, um, you know, there's some way to go, we discover, uh, when we go and see organisations uh, that relate to this. But I'm um, just going back to Ali's point, that the, the value exchange is the key thing to, to trying, from a commercial perspective, to try and get over. So uh, not, not only should you be completely, completely open and transparent when, when offering a choice to individuals, but you should clearly explain as well why it's in their benefits or not, actually, uh, for them to sign up uh, to such a thing. So, uh, but organisations are, are typically a long way away from doing this, this right right now.
0: Um, but I want to touch on this, uh, this, this point. Uh, it was raised a moment ago. So, you know, we asked um, consumers um, about their attitudes, but we, as I said right at the start of the day, uh, attitudes and behaviours don't always correlate. Uh, and we haven't necessarily seen um, a tremendous degree of opting out or resistance when it comes to online. So, um, you know, psychologists would would call that cognitive dissonance, where you you hold an idea, but you behave in a way that's contrary to that idea. Is that something that should concern us? Um, Perhaps Kate and then Helen, maybe um, you could give us a view on that.
1: That one's um, an interesting question. In fact, someone asked it in another session I was it's very interesting how people are so willing to give Google their data much more willing than they are, and Facebook, much more willing than they are to newspapers, for example, which came out in, in Dame Frances Cancross's report. You know, we're a very specific product. We're about serving the news, whereas what Google and Facebook can do with your data is so much bigger. So I do find what you've said, behaviors and versus answers, are quite different. And maybe the question, if you ask, you know, would you give you this data to to Google, how many of us just tick on the I agree whenever you're doing a search and it pops out, you know, have you already agreed to you? And you just say, yes, let me get on with my search, right? I wouldn't get that. I couldn't get that with the same amount of engagement on the Telegraph website, for example. So maybe the question would be, actually, who do you you trust Mm. more? And, And do your behaviors differ depending on the nature of the service? or the platform.
0: And, and why they're mm. trusted in that way? We probably uh, don't have time uh, to get yes. into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Helen, what are you, what's your thought? Yeah,
6: so I absolutely agree with you, Kate, and I think back to your original question, should we worry about it? I really think we should. I think mm. it's something we really need to consider going forward. And I think we've already touched on a number of reasons why people sort of... Ideas about what they would like to share with people are different from what they do in practice. You're absolutely right. Nobody has time particularly to sit and read everything and then make sure they're... Um, real uh, wants are reflected correctly. And also, I think people don't understand what data is being harvested around them. So, you know, you go onto Facebook and you do one of these funny little games about what is your, you know, jungle animal or whatever it is. You've just given away three bits of information you didn't even think about and you haven't really, you know, really... In- uh, Computed, but actually, that's that's going on there. So I think you know what we as businesses need to do is really think about and work through the scenarios that we could be creating here with those unintended consequences of what we're doing with perhaps legally obtained or, or you know ethically obtained data, um, and make sure that we really think that through so that we've got a robust um, comeback to that in the future. We've got many many examples recently about how you know what is acceptable and appropriate now. Um, practices that are standard and widespread are not so much in in the future. So we're going to be um, judged on uh, current standards for what we did now, later. And that's going to come back to bite us if we really don't pay attention to this and really think is the mind of the consumer and not what they said they wanted, but what they really, really wanted.
0: So do you think we are... Know, at a tipping point in, in those attitudes.
6: I think so because as more and more people, obviously we're getting more aware and people's expectations and uh, the, their, the, the feelings of the rights that they have are becoming more apparent and people will be expressing them so so we need to be really careful of that.
7: Mm. I, I've spent a lot of time working with VCs and startups and others and I think what, what struck me over the last sort of five, ten years is we've uh, brought over so many cultures from Silicon Valley that have really given us a sense of how do you grow a business really fast? How do you grow your customer base? How do you deliver a product? What do you do? But I think one of the things that we didn't realize, or we ha- the one uh, salient bit of information that we <coughs> sometimes don't reflect enough on, is that a lot of the time those businesses are really playing the long game. Mm. And so they might only be two or three years old, but they're imagining themselves as a 50-year-old company or 100-year-old company, and they're really thinking about what will it take to become that and be successful. Um, they... Values and incentives might be around growth or revenue or whatever other metric or KPI you want. But I agree with your point that we're at an inflection point. So maybe now what we need to really be doing is thinking about what is that KPI going to be for the next 50-year company or 100-year company. You know, It's likely to be the degree to which your customers trust you or the, the role that you occupy in broader society or your market or your ecosystem. And so if you're a brand new startup, that's what you, you should really be thinking about. If you are a 50-year-old company or 100-year-old company, you need to really be thinking, about, well, actually, what do we need to do? How do we pivot to make sure that we stay relevant in that space? Um, and I think this is where the ethics conversation can move from the abstract into something practically in the boardroom, which is what's our value differentiator? You know, For our corporate identity and the values that we care about, how do we turn that into something that uh, moves away from just compliance and let's be legal and let's just do what we need to do to keep our customers coming to us into something that says, yeah. here's why we are different. You know, I, I made a resolution that I would go to the gym in January, right? Evidently, <laughs> I haven't done that. So oh, We didn't you know, see the but,
0: before picture, though. This could <laughs> be you after the gym. It
7: <laughs> could be after that. It isn't. Um, but that motivation will still stay there in the back of my mind. You know, I need to change my lifestyle and become healthier. That's not going to go away. That's an intrinsic motivation for me. Um, but in the moment, the way that I'm presented, my life, the way that it is, might make it more difficult for me to respond to that. So how do you, if you were a service provider in that, you know, if you're in my gym, what should you be doing to really recognise the fact that I'm not really delivering on that promise I made to myself?
1: And the truth of the matter is, businesses aren't driven by what's ethically good. They're mm. driven by making money. And it's taken such a long time. I've been in meetings with competition and the European Um, government bodies to actually get them to look at the bigger picture. Now we're starting to see cooperation not just across Europe but also with the US and um, a little bit of waking up on Huawei as well. (laughs) Uh, But but, but it has taken a long time for regulation to come through. And there is an admission by the government regulators to say actually we've let it go too long and we don't know if we can reverse the harm that has been if it's too late. Um, But they certainly know that even if it is too late for this bit they must stop the next yeah. bit
0: and that's it for this edition of the data iq podcast you can find the research reports referenced here at our website data forward slash reports if you like the podcast please link like and share and until the next time goodbye